You're listening to the Sketchnote Army Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Rohde, the author of the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook. And this is the podcast where I chat with sketchnoters and visual thinkers and try to understand what makes them tick. Hey, Mike Rohde here. I'm teaming up with Peach Pit to give away 10 prizes in the Sketchnote Handbook 10th Birthday Giveaway. It's easy to enter the giveaway. First, you follow Peach Pit and Design on Twitter. Second, retweet at least one Sketchnote 10th Birthday tweet from Peach Pit or Design. And here are the 10 prizes you could win. One coaching session with me for 30 minutes. Three signed 10th Birthday Edition Sketchnote Handbooks. Three Sketchnote Idea Books and Airship Auto Quill Fineliner Six-Pack Pens as a set. And three Sketchnote Typeface Full Desktop Licenses. Visit rowdesign.com slash giveaway to see all the details. This contest runs from November 1st to November 30th, 2022, and is open to U.S. adults only. Entries must be received by 11.59 p.m. Eastern, November 30th, 2022, and winners will be announced on December 5th, 2022. See official rules at peachpit.com slash happy10. That's peachpit.com slash happy10. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, this is Mike Rohde. I'm here with my friend and co-sketchnoter Michael Clayton, better known as Prof Clayton on the interwebs. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Not a problem. Uh, Whenever we do these uh, shows where we need someone to interview me, (laughs) because I obviously can't interview myself, I call on my friend Mike because he knows me probably the best of anybody in the community. We've traveled together. We've stayed in hotels with bidets together. Uh, and made fun of the B-Days together. Um, so we've got history, and I really love Mike. He's a great dude, and couldn't think of anybody else better to do uh, to ask some questions about the Sketchnote Handbook on its 10th birthday celebration episode. So with that intro, I'm just going to turn it right over to Mike and get started with whatever he's got cooked up in his brain over there. Hey, everybody. Yep, it's me. You know, the funny thing is in the sketchnote world, I kind of had to go by prof because if <laughs> I never mentioned Mike, it's Mike Rohde, not Mike Clayton. So, you know, so in an essence, Mike, you are interviewing yourself because this is Mike interviewing Mike, which is a wonderful way to, to think of. So Mike's asked me to uh, go out into the interwebs across the various parts of social media and get your questions to ask him about this wonderful book. And I actually have mine right here right, right. the sketchnote handbook and it's compa- and it's baby brother so to speak the sketchnote workbook um which we'll talk about in a couple of years when that turns 10 yeah but one of the things is you know speaking about 10 years ago uh just as a, a little interlude i've told this story before um but i think a two-minute retelling might might be better but you know I actually bumped into Mike on Twitter about 12 years ago and just started following him. And then one day, uh, as an academic, I was attending a conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I got up the guff to send him a DM and say, hey, Mike, I'm going to be in uh, Milwaukee for a conference. Can I take you out to lunch? And so he wrote me back and asked me where I was going to be staying at. And I told him, he's like, dude, that's like a couple of blocks from where I work. So we got together and had lunch. And I remember... It was uh, October 8th or 10th of 2012. So it was it was 10 years ago, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he said that he had just gotten done sending the manuscript off 
for the sketchnote handbook. Um, and I just sat there going, wow, what was that like? And I remember sitting there uh, in that big open eatery place. What was that place again? It's the Milwaukee Public Market right down yep. in the uh, Third Ward. Yep. And so we sat there and he was telling me stories about going through and, and writing it. And the funny thing was, is about how, uh, you know, sometimes Mike talks about having four kids <laughs> and this was his third because his his uh, son was born just a little while later, um, which I remember uh, talking about. But it's been fun getting to know Mike over the last 10 years and especially um, getting to use this book. And just as a fun anecdote, I like to tease Mike that uh, I'm probably the one that has given away the most copies of this book. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, so as a professor teaching sketchnoting, I've had it required for probably about 150 students uh, over the course of the last 10 years. Um, plus, it makes a great gift. So if you want to head over and, and uh, buy it and give it away, Mike will talk about that later. But one of the things was really interesting about the Sketchnote Handbook, it was really one of the first books to really hit the market to talk about uh, sketchnoting as a personal thing. Um, you know, we had had lots of books before on, on graph recording or graphic facilitation or something along those lines, but really there was nothing personal um, on, the, on the market uh, about this book. So, Mike, I know you've answered this question before, but can you tell us, why write a book? What was it that got in your saddle that made you want to put pen to paper for a book? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I for a long time, I'd wanted to write a book since I was a little kid. But as I got older, I, I just thought, well, what am I going to write a book about? I'm not a fiction writer, really. If I did anything, it would be, would be nonfiction. But what am I going to write about? I mean, I, nothing really had ever come to me. Like, even as a designer, there weren't really design books that I felt led to write because I was right in the golden age of design books, right? So it was not necessarily easy to come up with something new and different. Or if I went technology that isn't, you know, uh, has to be redone in like a year, right? So I don't want to go down that path either. Uh, but I remember there were two people that sort of encouraged me to do it. The first was Patrick Roan, who we've got, um, there's an interview with Patrick several seasons back where we've talked a little bit about uh, his use of sketch notes in his own life personally. So he, he and I cross paths. He's in Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul specifically, um, and I'm in Milwaukee. So we just happened to connect up when I went to Minneapolis and um, we had just crossed paths in other times. And he kept bothering me like, Mike, the stuff you're doing is really cool. You should write a book. Like he probably said it a couple of times. And I took it to heart, but I did, again, I felt like um, I, don't, I wasn't ready. I was busy. There's always some excuse, right? Which I guess maybe the 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 cautionary tale here is: don't let yourself talk yourself out of a book if you think you have an idea. So he said it, and then um, when I was in Portland, I was visiting another friend that I'd made, another fellow designer, Von Glitchka, who, if you look him up, he's kind of a nut. He he is amazing um, at Adobe Illustrator and logo design and icon design and stuff. And um, he had been writing books with Peach Pit. And so we were in Portland. I said, hey, Vaughn, let's go have dinner. We'll bring our wives. We'll have some Thai food. So we did. And over dinner, he he went hard on me about, like, you got to write a book. You have to write a book. I've got an editor. I've got a publishing house. I know exactly what to do. Mike, will you write a book? And I, finally, I kind of relented. Okay, let's. I'll, I'll be happy to talk with your editor. And the funny story I tell is... Um, we 
went to Portland without a car, so we rode the train into our hotel. Um, so Vaughn and his wife took us to the venue where we had dinner, took us back. And as we got out of the car, like I saw Vaughn flipping his laptop open, and um, we went, we walked into the hotel. I didn't think anything of it. We got up to the up the elevator in our room, and I checked my email because we had been gone for quite a bit of the day. And <laughs> there was already an email from Vaughn to his editor Nikki, who is now my editor, saying, "Hey, you need to meet this guy. He's got a book he needs to write about sketch notes." It's like, holy cow, this guy's like seriously wanting this book to happen. So that was really the spark that sort of moved it forward. Once I got connected with Nikki, then she sort of laid out for me, like, here's what I need from you. Here's what you need to do. And I just started whatever she told me to do, I I, I did. And um, for those of you listening to the special or watching the special edition, I've got an interview later with Nikki uh, that you can check out where we talk a little bit about that time and what we saw uh, as the book was made and the impact of it. So that is really the origin story of those two people, Patrick Roan and Von Glischka, really leaning on me, thinking it was really important, and then me finally relenting and listening and doing something. I'm surprised that Von didn't push you into another company <laughs> to make some, you know, video tutorials and lessons and things like that, which you did with the original Sketchnote handbook. Um, right. Can you talk to us a little bit about those videos and how they came about? and the popularity of them and how they kind of help to elevate the book. Well, that's that's a good question too. So this is um, Von Glitschka pre, I, did, I think it was lynda.com at the time, which is now LinkedIn Learning. So you can probably find all his stuff in LinkedIn Learning. Um, at the time, he was still hardcore, um, big, I guess, big author with Peach Pit. Uh, Linda had not courted him yet, or at least not that I'm aware of. So he was still doing that and focused on writing books. Um, so it was a little time later that he switched over and went to Linda and kind of pretty much gone, went directly to video only, right? I think he stepped out of bookmaking yep. that I'm aware of. Um, the interesting thing was, is we f really focused on the book first, but as we talked, it was around this time that Linda was gaining, Linda.com, which is now LinkedIn Learning, was starting to gain some traction in the market. Like they were seen as sort of the preeminent uh, video people. Now, remind, reminding you that this is 2010, you know, YouTube and video and all that stuff kind of didn't exactly exist yet, or at least not in the form that we think of it now. So video was hard. There wasn't a lot of it. So to be the leader in it was impressive, but also <laughs> there just weren't a whole lot of competitors either, right? So Linda was sort of coming up. And I think Peach Pit felt the pressure that they had to uh, keep up with lynda.com and whatever other competitors they saw in the space. So they really were heavily interested in doing a video. And because we focused on this book being evergreen, we felt like um, doing a video of the same content, but in a slightly different way, being able to show things, being able to explain things uh, was really a cool way to go. So as part of the contract, I was um, hired to also do a video uh, companion that would go in the back of the book. Some other really interesting tidbits. It turns out that one of my best friends is Brian Artka, who's a video video storyteller. So I immediately knew who I was going to hire to do the work, and that was Brian, which we did. I also knew a guy named Gabe, who um, had written scripts for TV and uh, commercials. So I hired him as a contractor to help convert the text that I was still in the middle of writing and convert it into scripts that I could then boil down even further to bullet points and read on camera. And 
honestly, it was weird to be on camera because I had, you know, it's not like today where everybody's on YouTube and or Snapchat or Instagram or whatever. You know, being on video is not uncommon now, but back then it was kind of weird, and I had to get used to that. So the the last little quirky thing about these videos is that in the olden days, uh, Peach Pit would include a CD or later on a DVD in the back of their books. And this uh, 2010 was right about that time they were switching over to online, right? They're trying to get in that space. So it was like a tear-off tab. And inside there, there was a code that you would go to peachpit.com and enter this code and all the videos would be online. You could watch them there or download them, right? Yeah, so there's a little code thing. So I was right at that pivot point as well. So that was kind of unique. So all those things kind of fed together. Looking <laughs> Looking back... Like, it was a great experience shooting a video because it really made me think about what we worked on. The other thing I'll say about the video is it really informed the book itself. So as an example, if you look at, um, I think if you are able to find video number nine from the Sketchnote Handbook, which I think you can find on Vimeo. If you do a search, you can find it, and we'll, I'll dig up the link. You can see me sketchnoting a talk from beginning to end. It's my friend John Miller talking about his experience drumming. Just an interesting discussion and I um, my friend Brian shot a video of of the talk happening so it was a picture of of the talk being uh, going on but also he had a, a handheld camera and he was over my shoulder videoing me while I was building the sketch note and then what he did is he synced them together and he would do cutaways so he'd do like a b-roll cutaway between John and me and what you could hear John talking and see me like drawing on the page if we've heard We've heard a lot that that's like one of the favorite videos from the book because it really shows like what does it look like when it's happening. So not only was it a cool video, but it actually really helped me doing the book because I started. I had a, a, a section of the book where I wanted to identify step by step like what stuff did I do first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and I was like, I have I have no idea. I don't remember exactly what I did first. So fortunately, I got the raw cut of me sketch noting from Brian. And I just played that on my Mac, and then I could sort of, de you know, deconstruct which parts went in which order. So it really did inform the book itself and made the book better by having that video recording. I think probably the the sadness around the video is, I think a lot of people don't know it exists because, you know, it's a code in the back of a book. It's not like a disc that you can't miss. Uh, some people would buy the used books and the code wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there was other frictions around logging in and doing it online and all that, all these kind of things. So there was a little bit of sadness around like, you know, I wish that had gotten more traction. We talked about, um, maybe offering it to another platform. It was on Udemy for a while. So you could buy it on Udemy separately. Right now you can buy it uh, online from PeachBit directly if you want to see it. But I kind of felt like it was the, the lost stepchild in a way, right? It, it never really got the attention and I feel like that's one of the coolest things that we did was the video and especially the way we interpreted the book and made it into video content that for many people to see the to see it happening is really valuable like some people can read it imagine it and understand it but there's some people who really identify with seeing it going on and I felt like there was a missed opportunity that we could have maybe promoted or pushed that further or negotiated with someone to release it to, to a broader audience than it ended up getting to. So yeah, that's the story of the video.
So uh, I'm going to pop a, a question in that I got from uh, from one of the social media ites that are out there. Mm-hmm. He asked, oh, what was it like working with other illustrators who appeared in the books? Well, uh, the story behind that is I loved it. I thought it was great. And the reason that it even happened was because I felt like I did not want to produce a book that was all my artwork. And it was like the Mike Rody way to do sketch notes. I mean, it's already got enough of my stuff having illustrated it, which was an intention. But I didn't want everything to be that because my concern was this, that if it was all my work and it was all my stuff, it would people would think, well, that's the only way to do it. Like, that's the way to do it. And it would become sort of the standard. And if somebody looked at it and thought, I, I can't do that work. I'm not that good. I'm not a designer. Like, it would turn people off and they would just never give it a try and give up. So I felt like I need to get not only a variety of people in the book, but I need to find people that are not trained designers, people that are regular people. So like Jessica Ash is a perfect example of someone like this. She's a librarian in Maine, but she loved sketchnoting. She was finding it really useful and uh, helpful. And so I reached out to her and she submitted work to us. And, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, I have Eva Lotta Lamb as a sample. She's an amazing sketchnoter. She's an accomplished designer, visual thinker. So, I mean, those would be like the two ends of the spectrum, kind of. And there were all different people in between. But even like the samples, um, as I started to flesh out like what I was trying to say, once I knew what that was, then I started approaching people and saying, hey, I would love to have your, your piece in the book for this section. I would try to give them context and explain. Everybody was really understanding. And it was actually really fun for me because my intention was to show, hey, there. I had been seeing this five, six years before the book existed. Like, there's a community, and the cool thing about it is everybody's stuff is so different, and yet they all uh, conform to pretty common principles, and yet they're so different because of the personalities. I want to somehow capture this in the book so when people see it, they'll think, like, well, you know, I can't be like Eva Lotta. But I could be like Jessica, right? That could be a thought process that would go in their head or some other sample that they might see through the book. Even, you know, in the book, I emphasize a ton, like if you have the book, ton ton of times that, you know, bad drawings uh, still work. Like you don't have to be an amazing artist. That's like a, like I got, I repeated it so often. I got complaints in the reviews that it was repetitive. But mm. I felt like it was so, because so many people have this, uh, baggage and burden of I can't draw in their lives that they almost need someone to tell them like five times that you can do it 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 so that was the whole intention like the 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 idea behind it and uh, I think that really does come through I've heard people remark that seeing other people's work in there really made uh made them feel like they could pull it off so that, that yeah and that that really falls back I think just a few days ago didn't you release the the permission to suck at drawing certificate. Yes. Yeah, we'll link up to that. I'm looking into like doing little stickers because apparently it's like super popular. It was just sort of a tongue-in-cheek joke for a workshop that I taught. Like, well, what you know? Wouldn't it be interesting if I made a certificate and it says like "chill out," the right to take the time I want, and you know, yep. just it's sort of like this. It's it's really funny. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek and silly, but yet people really responded to it because. You know, it sort of does give you permission. Like, you don't have to be this amazing artist and you sort of let go of it. Like, it, it's like the last finger on the baggage is being let go when you sign that paper, right? So, it's funny and yet it's also poignantly 
accurate and useful. So it's just sort of a, you know, an experiment that seems like it's touched a nerve. And so I'm going to pursue it a little bit and see, hey, there's some things I can produce, like pads of these things to give teachers <laughs> or stickers that you can put on your laptop. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of fun things could be done with it. So I know I want to take it and print it out and put it in a frame <laughs> and hang it next to my degrees in my office on campus. And like, yeah. what's this one about? <laughs> You know, what's really funny is that question actually came from Paul Supase, one of our common friends yes. uh, who is featured in in the first book. Mm-hmm. And he had a follow-up story or a follow-up question that he wanted to ask. And it was also, tell us a story or two about transitioning the books and the pieces into the non-English translations. Mm. So um, I've had a variety of experiences. The most recent one, I'll sort of work most recent to the earliest. The most recent one was um, Vietnamese. And I, it was just this strange, I'm trying to think where I got reached by this. If it was an email or a direct message, kind of doesn't matter. But someone from Vietnam, a Vietnamese person, this guy reached out and said, hey, I want to translate your book into Vietnamese. Um, can you help me? And I said, sure. So I, I introduced him uh, to the rights people at Peach Pit, made the introduction and sort of forgot about it. And then, I don't know, like two months later, uh, copies of both books wrapped in plastic in Vietnamese appeared in my on my door in a box. Um, I think there was a lot of them. I think there was like five of each or something like that. So it was like I simply said, yeah, go for it. And they sort of took care of everything. We made sure they, of course, had all the Photoshop files and stuff. But they took it from there and did all the language translation. I know in... in uh, uh, in China, so I worked with the the translator uh, for the Chinese version, and she had lived in uh, China, but also had lived in Amsterdam, so she was a fluent English speaker. And she, uh, working with her was fascinating because she told me that for the Chinese reader, like some of the um, idioms that I was using were very Western or even very American idioms that a Chinese person would look at and like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, so she had to like, because she knew English and Western culture, she sort of translated those into similar Chinese idioms or ones that would communicate the idea. Mm-hmm. And so um, the samples were really interesting to see like how she translated. I couldn't obviously read the Chinese. So you have to, at some point you have to rely on these translators to do a good job. There's it's really out of your control. Um, but it was kind of cool to think like um, the whole idiom needed to change. So it would make sense to a Chinese reader. Um, the French and the German editions were really hands-on. So both, uh, the French first or the German first and the French after that editors worked with me really closely. We set up a Basecamp account. I secured a bunch of this. So we replaced whole samples with as much French or German samples as we could in those books, particularly the two page spreads. So I think in the German one, Ivalada actually swapped all her English to German. Mm-hmm. And I think in the French one, she might have done the same. I'd have to look again. It's been a while. But um, I was pretty heavily involved in sourcing uh, replacements so that it would have a more localized feeling, right? So you want to show French people in these books or German sketchnoters in these books so it would be rele- relevant because unfortunately for them, they had limited budgets and as they could change the text and had designers that could change headlines but in many cases, the samples, they couldn't, with the time frame they have, replace everything with a German replacement or a French replacement. So some of the English did remain in those books. So um, 
that was interesting. The two that were most fascinating were, well, I'll say three that were most fascinating. One was the Russian and Ukrainian editions, the Russian first and Ukrainian after. They secured the rights and they were crazy. Like they went through the whole book and they replaced uh, all the text with Russian Cyrillic text, uh, even in the sketch notes. So they went into the sketch notes and someone like hand wrote in Cyrillic. Oh. It was like, I looked at the book and it was almost like if I was a Russian and I wrote it with a Russian publishing team. It was that That's that pretty diehard. Detailed, yes. <laughs> and the same thing with the Ukrainian edition was similar. Um, the last story I'll tell about uh, language editions is the Czech uh, language edition um, was somewhere in between. I think there was some replacement and some, you know, uh, some not. But they were really interesting in that they invited Gail and I to come and attend a conference. The publisher did. Say, hey, you want to come over to Prague? Like, sure, why not? So we uh, we bought a flight and we flew through Germany, ended up in Prague for a couple days. That's where I met Mauro Toselli and his uh, partner uh, for the first time and hung out uh, in Prague together for a long weekend and got to be on Prague uh, and Czech Republic national TV in the morning wow. and talk about sketch notes. So there's um, that that happened and um, quite, you know, you just never know or like. <laughs> You write this book, and you know years later, suddenly you're sitting in a in Prague on a on a TV show talking about your sketch notes of your team losing in a championship game and laughing about it with these hosts. So I mean, you know, weird things happen in life, and I can't explain them, but you know, you just got to be ready and sort of go with the flow. So all in all, how many different languages is the sketch note handbook available in? I always have to count this. I should probably have it on a list somewhere. So obviously English. Uh, German, French, Russian, Chinese, Vietnamese, Czech, and Ukrainian. I think that's it. Is that five? That's uh, eight. Eight eight languages. Is it in um, Polish? It is not in Polish. Um, We're still waiting for Spanish one of these days. Yeah, right? Spanish is the odd one. I don't understand exactly why it hasn't been translated into Spanish yet. Um, I will say this, that um, part of the reason why, like as an example, Austin Kleon's book, uh, Steal Like an Artist, and my book came out almost around the same time. They had really similar look and feel. Um, Austin and I are acquaintances, and we, we've had barbecue together and stuff. Um, but his his was translated in far more languages. I think his publisher was probably more aggressive about doing it. Mm-hmm. There was probably more demand because it's more like a... That was more like a big market uh, book than mine was. Mine's more niche, right? Um, but I think also mine is complex to translate because... It's just it, the whole thing is illustrated, you know, like even Austin's has images and text and you can kind of, you know, you can sort of modify the images and then just flow the text in another language and it kind of works. And mine was complex. You had to hire like an illustrator of some kind or a designer at least to make it happen. Not, you know, not even to point out like the Russians had like a team. Like if you look in the if you look in the team, there was like six or seven people that redid that book in Russian. So um, you know, all the publishers sort of took it in their own way. You know, what's interesting is, you know, as, as time marches on and, you know, the, the sketch note workbook, you know, came out soon after, and we'll save that for another day, but about the same time as this book came out, you know, the iPad was released. And then within a few years, um, 
you know, people were trying to do different styluses and different things for them. And then the Apple Pencil came out, then the Apple Pencil 2, and we got things like Procreate and Paper 53 and all the rest of those wonderful things. Mm -hmm. And sketchnoting took a decisive turn towards the digital and folks were abandoning, well, maybe setting aside their moleskins and their uh, different, different notebooks to embrace this digital medium. How do you feel about sketch notes moving digital versus staying pen and paper? Well, I think it's a natural progression. I was waiting for the iPad to get good enough to use. Um, if you look in the in the handbook, you can see appearances of my phone and my old iPad in there. Um, but they were really not considered tools because at the time they, they just weren't. like Even with the styluses and the software that existed, the the fine-grained control that you get with an Apple Pencil and an iPad Pro just didn't exist, and it was impractical unless you modified your whole approach, right? So mm -hmm. it wasn't didn't even enter my mind. However, um, when Nikki and I talked about the book, we wanted it to be evergreen, and so we said, okay, we understand the technologies here. There's a really good chance that iPads will get better, um, but we're going to focus on principles and the principles of Sketchnotes and to make sure we cover those regardless of whether you use paper or uh, an iPad. And so I think that was a really smart move uh, on our part, I guess, that we didn't focus so much on technology because the whole thing about Peach Pit was they were in this trap already. Like a lot of Peach Pit's books, which are tech press, always have to be revised. It's Photoshop 6, Photoshop 6.1, Photoshop 6.2. They're always making these changes. You've encountered this, Mike, with some of the books that you've taught, right? That... If you depend on technology, it changes so fast that you're constantly chasing it. You're following it. And they wanted to get out of that with this book and with other books that talked more about principles and approaches and mindsets and things. So we kind of consciously avoided technology, even though we could have pursued it more. There's a little bit of a touch in it um, because of that, because we knew that the book would hold up even if what happened did happen. iPads got really good and became a platform. So I think from the book perspective, I think that was good because the principles are still the same. Mm -hmm. still, you can still read the book and you can do it on paper or you can do it on an iPad either, either way. I am excited about the iPad. Um, I use it all the time. Uh, I still use paper and pen, and I think it's probably a 50-50 split maybe. I don't know. It, for me, it really depends on the customer or the purpose. So I always <laughs> think about what's the purpose first, and that will dictate my approach like and sometimes my purpose will have self-imposed uh, limitations just to make it fun and interesting, right? So if I'm going to do something with quick turnaround or it's a customer who's a client who needs changes or iterations, it just naturally makes sense to go with the iPad because you just have so much power of undo and moving and, and redoing that's not so painful, right? So the iPad is super powerful that way and there's tools now that are really powerful for that. But there are some times when I think having pen and paper is valuable when um, it's hard for your notebook to distract you with a tweet or someone bothering you to wonder, you know, when you're going to do this or that, right? You can sort of get away with a piece of uh, paper or a notebook and a pen. And, the other, you know, they never run out of batteries. You don't have to yep. wait for them to start up, you know. Um, and the beauty is you can still draw in paper and pen and then take photos of it and still keep records. So if you, even if your book gets lost... You can have a record and store it permanently if you want to. So, right, there's there's definitely trade-offs. I always thought, like, the pen and paper was uh, a great foundation. 
And I always thought of the iPad Pro as an extension, not as a replacement. You know, I just probably because I was trained by my dad to always look at what is the problem you're solving, choose the right tool to solve the problem. You know, you don't um, build a house uh, with a screwdriver instead of a hammer, right? You use hammer and nails or screws. Same kind of thing. Like, I think the principles remain the same. And I think um, however you choose to approach it, uh, those principles come through in the book. And, you know, who knows where, I mean, in 10 years, iPads might be reading our brains, right? We might not even use our hands anymore. I don't know. I mean, and the concepts are still the same. See, and the interesting thing is, you know, as a, as a graphic designer myself, you know, I have had in my studios uh, Wacom tablets, and I've had all sorts of digital tablet devices and things like that. But it never dawned on me to do sketch noting with that, you know, because the the paper and the and the pen was just so much, you know, so much more permanent, right? Right. You, know, you talked about being able to go in and change and and modify those things. Do you think that as sketch noting has evolved into a digital form? that it's lost some of the character uh, when it comes to doing analog ones? That's a good question. I think yes and no. I would say yes. I was look, I've was i been looking um, at sketchnotes for a project, and I've just sort of noticed that um, when I see Procreate or iPad-based things, and Eva Lott has talked about this in an interview a long time ago, that she can sort of spot when it looks like it's software, like it sort of has a look to it. And... I think you can overcome a lot of that now with brushes and the way you can tweak your stuff that and the engines, the, the ink engines that some of these tools are able to produce uh, that make it look like ink on paper, right? Even with bleeding and even paper by we transfer back in the day could do this watercolor that would look like it's bleeding in paper. And mm-hmm. I think their, their ink engine is still one of the best ink engines that I've ever used, even considering Procreate and some of the other tools just really feels like I'm using a pen. It's just digital, right? So there's definitely some things you can spot. But I think also opening up the the field or the opportunity to use those opens up more people to using it, and especially professionals who want to do it, gives them a tool that makes it possible. You've been in that case where you've done them both ways, and there's huge advantages to doing it digitally that... It's hard to it's hard to avoid, right? On the other side, I think there is something interesting about the limitations of pen and paper and time and space that make those sketch notes interesting because you can't do undo. And if you put something on the page, now you gotta work around it and you have to commit. Like my first experiments were all about forcing myself to go to a conference with a little book and a pen instead of a big book and a pencil listen to these ideas and really process and only capture the things that made uh, made most sense to capture and very few of them because my page was too small to capture everything. So I had to be super selective. So it trained me in this way of sort of listening and thinking and processing and then capturing that I think even if you're regularly doing digital stuff, it's not a bad idea to do some experiments with you know physical books and pens to remind yourself that limitations are really valuable and a good thing to keep you on your toes. Like I think, uh, I think about this often, like when comedians go up, they can either kill or they can die. It's really interesting. The terms they use, if you get into the, into humor, right? They go up on mm-hmm. stage. If you get a good crowd, you could kill, right? You're like super popular. People remember you the rest of their lives, or you could like have the wrong material and the wrong, and you could die up there and be terrible. And people would boo you off the stage. Right. Right. 
and the uh, I think the draw of all this is the a little bit of the performance. In that case, it's public performance, uh, and in the case for me doing it, it's sort of like private performance. Like, man, this could really go sideways, and that's kind of exciting. Like, not everybody likes that, but there's something that I learned by having limitations and like, I gotta make this work. Like, there's something fun and exciting about it, maybe going wrong. Because if it, when it goes right, it's like, oh, yeah, I overcame the possibility that it could go wrong. I overcame that I only had this little book. I overcame that I only had one pen, that I only had limited time, and I had to make it all kind of work together. There's something super satisfying about when you could pull it off. That's really cool. So um, I advise, I would advise sketchnoters who maybe are, are fully or mostly digital to... Um, not forget about your your uh, analog roots and and pull it out even if just for experiments. Pick up the pen again. Pick up yeah. the pen again. You know it's interesting because you know it's kind of interesting over the last decade as as sketch notes have kind of moved to a, a a bigger forefront. You know they start to look a little more glossy, a little more polished, a little yeah. more finished, and that was not the intention when the when the 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 handbook came out. It was this raw and in the moment kind of thing and and yeah it kind of gets lost a little bit so if 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 peach put were to come back to you and say hey mike you know we want to we want to have you do a second edition of this book for the 10th anniversary what chapter would you have added to this book what what would you have tacked on to it to kind of Hmm. make it a better edition well i mean the 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 immediate temptation is to say digital like, and maybe that would be, maybe that would be a chapter, right? Is the general, maybe it would be more talking about kind of like what we were, like the advantages of digital, the reasons why digital is useful, but also the warning that digital can trick you. Like you can um, noodle forever. I know you and I both have this challenge where yep. you're doing a sketch that like, I could like noodle with that thing forever. I got to like cut it off because it's endless. I can keep changing things over and over for hours and hours. And if you're on a job, like you don't make money when you do that, right? If you spend too many hours on a project, you're making like, you know, McDonald's money or something, right? Yep. So um, maybe I would talk about like the pros and cons of digital versus analog and show samples and, and that kind of stuff and maybe get into. But again, I would I think I would keep it really principled. I wouldn't specifically talk about hardware because like tomorrow the hardware can change. I mean, yep. the iPads just got released and they're a little bit different now. So within, you know, we wanted it to last a long time and it has lasted 10 years because we focused on principles and I would find a way to focus on principles there as well. And maybe, you know, if I were to say another option, if we didn't do digital or maybe in addition to it would be the importance of focusing on doing it for yourself. Like, I think it was sort of implied there, but maybe I would go even more uh, emphasizing that stop worrying about doing this for other people do your you know bad drawings and sketches and maybe have samples of like a whole chapter full of really bad rough sketches that work i know this is dear to your heart you did a talk on this at the isc years ago about uh i guess i don't know what the term was but bad it was, sketches. This, it was the search for the ugly sketch notes. ugly sketch notes yeah and i know eva lotta just wrote a no, uh, an article about this recently Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, it's about functionality and practicality where it's just to solve a problem. And maybe you never show it to anybody, right? You do it and it stays in your book and it never gets on Instagram, it never gets on TikTok, it never gets on Snapchat, like, and that's okay. 
Like, I think there's probably the one thing that I see around sketch notes is I probably see more of them than maybe I need to, uh, you know, like, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm the sketch note guy and I love seeing them and I love seeing uh, different approaches, but feels like some of this stuff, like, I don't know, maybe we just need to keep yourself or it's more valuable to just you than to the whole world. I don't know. You know, I, I think that one of the coolest things is, is workshops with kids that are between seven and 12. Because, you know, when you, I've done that in, in the elementary school space and it's cool because they think it's the best thing ever. And you look at it and you're like, yes, it is. Just keep going, you know, because it just has that, that rawness, that power, yeah. because it is for, for them. And I'm one of those sketch noters that maybe 2% of all the sketch notes I've ever done have appeared online. And people are always asking for more and more and more, but it is, it is that internal kind of for you, you know, right. uh, thing, thing for this. You know, in in all of the in all of the the years and and all of the the workshops and all of the talks and all of the conferences and all the invites and everything that's happened and transpired, you know, in those almost four thousand days since this book came out, right? What printing is this handbook on? That is a good question. I don't. There's not editions, and I don't know if that's because of the way Peach Pit works or what. They're still printing the same version there might be typo chain fixes in there that, that i'm not aware of but it's kind of the same artwork that i delivered 10 years ago that they're running um, i'm sure they printed it multiple times but they wouldn't call it an edition i think something has to change but i don't know i'm not i don't know well, that's just like printing you know like you'll get a comic book like i know that i know that this right here is one of the first printings right right <laughs> and it's, it's probably got to be in the teens or the 20s of printings i suspect because well, I could tell you this, that I asked the editor, I said, can you give me like, I know you can't give me exact numbers easily because it's a pain. Their systems are so antiquated and hard to get into. But I said, can you give me like a rough estimate? If you look at the systems, like how many of the Sketchnote handbook, including printed book, digital book, video, all that stuff, like how many have sold? And she came back and said 60,000. Wow. 60,000 copies of that crazy book. And, you know, we had no budget. We, you know, they promoted it a little bit, but they're kind of a niche, you know, publisher. A lot of the work that I did was guerrilla, and it was just people finding it and liking it and sharing it and, like you, giving it to people or having them buy it. So that's pretty cool to sell 60,000 copies without having any kind of marketing budget or anything like that. And it keeps on selling. I mean, obviously, we're, we're trying to sell more with this 10th birthday with you know, the special deals and stuff like that. But um, obviously what I think what I'm really satisfied is that the work we did to make it evergreen and sort of a classic, I guess we hoped it would become a classic. We had no idea. I mean, it could have turned out nobody would have bought it and it would have died, you know, <laughs> but that's not the way it worked out. We were lucky in some sense. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty fascinating. 60,000. So, you know, the, the Sketchnote Handbook has spawned uh, many other writers into creating their own books on on sketch notes. Some great, some not so great. Some that you and I have tried to get taken off of Amazon because <laughs> yeah. they are so poor yeah. and different things like that. But you know, you think of all the things that that you've done uh, for people with the sketch note handbook. Are there any other books that you've seen by other authors that you think might have the same impact? Well, I can say, I mentioned one earlier in the discussion, was Austin Kleon, Steel Like an Artist. 
I remember when um, his came out like, I don't know, a month before mine, two months, something like that. They were right in the same window of time. Maybe it was his was September, mine was December. I remember buying his book, and I think I took my son for a haircut, and I read, I pretty much read the whole book while sitting waiting for my son to get his haircut. And as as soon as I was done reading that book, I was like, I got to make something. I have to make something right now. Like, I have to go back and do something now. And I thought, that would be cool if my book was like that too, where you would read it. It wouldn't take long, but the seed that it planted would make you want to do stuff. That would be super cool. I'm trying to think if there's other books that I that come to the top of my head. Um, what about you, Mike? Are there any books for you that sort of stand out that way? Oh, man. You know that right back over there in that well, shelf, yeah. those bottom three shelves are all visual note-taking books. And I think that probably one of them that I've been most impressed with is, I think, is your... your uh, you're equal over on the other side of the water when we talk about Nadine Rosa. You know, it's in German yeah. and I only have the German edition of it, but wow, it's got a lot of really good insights and things like that. And that's why it was kind of interesting to see your German copy sitting next to hers when we were over in Hamburg a couple of years ago. Right. You know, to to see that. But you know, one of the things is you've kind of really opened up the the world, this idea of of sketch noting and and dozens of authors have come by and tried to, you know, surpass this and try to do something a little bit better than it. But in my opinion, and, and it's as biased as I'll get out, you know, <laughs> nothing can quite top what the the sketchnote handbook has done uh, for for me and for for my career and for my students and for the folks that I I give it to. So you know, it's a wonderful happy birthday to the sketchnote handbook and. Even though it's been around for 10 years, I know it's going to be around for a long, long time. And we have you to thank for it. Um, you know, I know we we need to have a moment of silence for, you know, we we have our our Star Wars. We have our Empire Strikes Back and we kind of have to, you know, pour one out or have a moment of silence for the return of the Jedi that, that never happened. But I think that with these two books right here, it's given us a nice depth and breadth, both with the, the handbook to show us what to do uh, or how to do it. And then the sketch note workbook um, showing us how to, uh, to, to apply it to many different things. And, and we'll talk about that book a little bit later, but you know, I just want to say on behalf of sketch noters everywhere, Mike, thank you for writing this and thank you for bringing people together. There are people who have bonded and have met each other because of this book and been able to to capture, you know, everything from talks to lessons to life moments. Um, you know, you and I both know that there have been books uh, that have been done of sketch notes that are political journals we've seen some that are people's journeys through hard times uh you know even evolata's uh trip around the world when yes. she did her book or yeah. even the the visual mba sketch note that was done mm -hmm. a Jason few Baron. years ago yeah you know it's one of those things that you know when you when you drop a pebble into a into a pond we know that one pebble has weight and substance but the effects of that ripple can keep going and keep going and tussle lily pads over here or hit reeds over there and and sometimes even hit bigger things and uh i just think on behalf of of sketch noters everywhere thank you for the work that you've done thank you for the the sketch note handbook and uh with that uh i think this interview is over unless you've got one something to say or 
No, this is great. I think um, if you're really into it and you want to hear a little bit more of the origin story again of the book and how it happened and why we did what we did and some of the stories of impact, you know, keep listening uh, to part two, which is uh, with my editor on the project, Nikki. Uh, we talk a little bit more, a little more nuts and bolts and why do we think it worked and what, what we were thinking at the time as much as we can remember 10 years later. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up next. Thanks sure. a lot, Mike. I, I appreciate those kind words and um, I'm, I'm glad, I'm honored that I could be in this position to do this work. And I just feel like, you know, this is what I've been called to do. And I'm glad that I've had, had the opportunity and I hope I've done it well. And thank you for asking me to come back on the podcast again and be able to talk to you for a time. It's always a pleasure. Great. All right, everyone. Uh, up next, Nikki McDonald. This episode of the Sketchnote Army podcast is brought to you by Concepts, an infinite, flexible, creative tool for all your good ideas. Available on iOS, Windows, and Android. The new Concept 6 for iOS has exciting new features, including a modernized Canvas interface, a freshly structured, easier-to-use gallery that integrates with the iOS Files app, and RGB and HSL color options added to its already extensive Copic color palettes. Concept's Infinite Canvas lets you spread out and sketch in any direction. Draw and take notes with liquid pens, markers, and brushes in your favorite colors. Everything you draw in Concepts is a flexible vector, so you can move your notes around the canvas or change their color, tool, or size with simple gestures. Drag and drop images onto the canvas and use layers and grids to organize your creative space. When you're ready to share, export straight to your friends or team. Search Concepts in your favorite app store for infinite, flexible sketching. Everyone, welcome to part two of this special edition for the Sketchnote Handbook 10th birthday. In this part, I sat down and I talked with my former editor, the one who helped me make the Sketchnote Handbook happen uh, in the very beginning. And we talk a little bit about things we remember from the creation of that book, what made it unique. Uh, we talk a little bit about stories of impact after 10 years of being in the world and some of the funny things that we remember. So it'd be helpful if you're someone who's considering writing a book and you're curious about what publishing is like and and the, the changes between 10 years ago and today. Um, so please enjoy and uh, thanks for watching and listening. So I don't know, I haven't thought a ton about exactly what I want. And I, that was kind of my intention to kind of keep it open. And no chat. so the idea was to just chat a little bit about like 10 years ago, like what were we thinking at that time? If we look back, like, you know, you had things in your mind when we met and you had these ideas and we were bouncing ideas off of each other and how we uh, sort of fought to make the book happen. I think a lot of it was you. <laughs> oh, man. It was so long ago. I had to, like, go back to some of my notes because I'm a, yeah. I have such a – I have a terrible memory, Mike. It had to mm. – um, I, I don't remember. I just – once think some things are done, they leave my brain. Like I think Tina Fey talked about this once in a podcast mm. on Smart List. She was we were asking her about something she did a long time ago, and she's like, "I don't know when I'm done. It goes right in the recycling bin. Like their <laughs> memories, memories are just gone." But oh, your book does stand out for me because it was so special. Like that, mm. everything about your book was special. Though that it was the first of its kind um, that I had done like that. That was like mm. fully 
well, did, did Stefan Bucher's book come out before yours? You did You did advise me to talk to Stefan, and we talked a little bit. He was a real help in thinking about it. So he did precede us and had sort of done something unique for sure. Yeah, his was definitely so his was his was, I think, maybe helped actually make way for yours mm-hmm. um, in the in the fact that it was heavily illustrated and was a departure from the types of books Peach Pit had done before. Um, because, you know, we you know Peach Pit made its money selling how to books, you know, how right. to use Photoshop, Illustrator, Adobe, and all very technical. And then, and then we wanted to back then we were looking at ways to kind of grow the list and expand and and kind of make way into new markets and create books that were evergreen so that we wouldn't have to like continually be in that review that you know update cycle of a new software product comes out now we have to 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 revise everything which is expensive and um and so we're looking for some books that might have a longer shelf life so yours had all of that it was unique it was it was it was one of the first ones um, aside from uh, Stefan's that was fully illustrated, and I want to give credit to Scott Cowlin for that because I remember remember when we were talking about what we're going to do with your book, like how are we going to like you know how are we just how are we going to do this thing, and um, and I think he I think we were t- I was brainstorming with Scott, and he's like you'd wanted I think to do it fully illustrated, but like really focused on the on the illustrations as opposed to like with the focus being on a lot of text with the illustrations mm-hmm. being supporting and um I'm Scott Cullen our marketing manager then and he's the publisher now at Rocky Nook he was like let's mm-hmm. do it let's let's do let's 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 take the risk and like make it a fully illustrated book um which is different from anything we'd done it was more expensive to create um didn't fit the mold for most of our books um uh, it was definitely a it was a departure from what we had done it was a bit of a risk because it was a new market and a new format and a new author um yeah but, but boy look how it turned out yeah it turned out pretty good i think it's continuing to sell and i think i talked to uh, my current uh editor laura and she said uh, she did like a, a quick search and roughly sixty thousand copies of the book in all forms have sold in 10 years isn't that crazy Sixty thousand books who knew yeah Exactly. And you're right. We, you know, there were lots of, we tried lots of experiments with the book, right? You think about, well, number one, you said it's fully illustrated. Um, I produced the typeface of my handwriting so that I, because I was, a, the, the story was I was a production designer for 10 years. So I knew what it meant to do like annual reports and sitting on press checks and like all the production stuff. And there was no way I was going to handwrite all that text because I knew that there'd be typos. I knew myself too well, right? Even with editors, there's going to be typos and stuff. Um, so I got a typeface uh, made with a collaborator, Delve, and we we turned that into a product, which still sells, and we're talking about upgrading um, and adding to. My husband actually almost used that for a, really? a logo he was designing just like a week ago. He ended up not using it, but but and he was looking at options before he even realized it was yours. He's like, I, he's like, this looks like a go. I'm like, I know that font. It's very familiar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that was new. I mean, having this typeface to make my life easier. Um, I remember we wanted to, we sort of, at the time I was using moleskins pretty heavily. So we wanted that rounded corner. So all the books had the rounded corner. That was another layer of different. Um, I think we, we spent, I think it was two weeks trying to find a coding. Like you were doing research on codings 
one you sent me was sort of like linen and we both kind of felt it like ew <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. that one and um we went with the sort of the matte coating which oddly enough um austin cleon's book steel like an artist came out almost at the same time like maybe a month before the handbook and they had a similar look and feel and turns out that his publisher had also used that same kind of matte uh coating i guess you would call it right it's it's a coating matte um, lay flat not yeah. only was it matte but it was a lay flat binding yeah. so it wasn't you know that that is another extra expense when you open it up it lay flat like a moleskin and not like a, an extra an ordinary book right and i think production wise uh your your printers were used to doing cmyk stuff for people who are not printers or designers cmyk is this cyan magenta yellow black k is for black with which if you look at any book or printed object uh, those four colors are used in different variations to produce any any color you like within a range like there's some colors like fluorescent it can't produce or you know there's limits to what it can produce but for most part if you look at a magazine any magazine newspapers uh, even books they're using the cmyk approach which is great because you can do full color pictures you can do all kinds of stuff and we went away from that we said we're gonna we're gonna give that up and we're gonna do black and one pms pantone color and we ended up settling on orange i think i was the one that picked the orange color i love that color and it was really tricky because with orange if you really think about it like if it's too light you can't really read the lettering with it with the color if it's too light but if it's too dark then it can get look real heavy and it gets a weird like pumpkin-y look to it. it can get weird right so there was like really hard it took me a long time to like pick the right pantone orange that would be bright enough and yet not it would hold up um like lettering right so you could, i could do lettering in it but once we kind of nailed that orange um being a production designer really helped me because um you know i knew that i could i could do tones of it so like 60%, 30%, 20% and achieve the feeling of color variation by simply using screens which we would call them right so that so that was that helped me same thing with the black right we had black but we also had all the tones yeah black yeah and that's and we, how we that's how we save money that's that was our cost right. cutting right because we looked i think we talked about having more colors um but we just couldn't do it because we decided to spend our money on the, the, right. the nice cover and the rounded corners and the leaf lamp binding. Um, right. Right. But I think it, I think it looks even better with two colors than it would have with. I think so too. It really is um, iconic, I guess is the right word. Right. So, and I think, so the other thing that I was happy about was I knew that we were running on a little bit higher quality paper. So we chose a little bit heavier paper and it was cream colored. So it wasn't bright white. Um, which gave it sort of a warm, you know, welcoming feeling. That was pretty subtle. I don't think it was like super creamy, but it was off white, I guess is maybe the right way to describe it, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we're but, trying to imitate the look of mm -hmm. what a moleskin paper would look like. Right. And I think that that gave me comfort because I had done uh, the book rework. I'd done illustrations for that book and I used the same strategy there. I only had black. So I had to, all I had were black or tones. And what I found was, um, depending on when the book was run, like if it was early in the press run, um, a lot of the tones would get plugged up. Is was a, this, what a pressman's term is like, basically they're running the ink heavy. And so when you use tones, all those little dots that produce the tones 
get a little tight, just fractionally bigger than they should be. And if they bang into each other and you get this weird, like heavy looking tone, right? So I noticed on some of the early rework books, because they were running on like um, uncoated paper and maybe it was the early run, like some of those illustrations got, got kind of heavy and over time it settled out. But I knew with this paper that I would have a lot better control because it was a, I think it was a calendared paper, which means it's run through these rollers and hardened. So it's got a smooth surface, right? So the ink will lay on it and not, you won't have that kind of variation where the, the soaking into the uncoated paper can have like, you have to sort of account for that, right? So we didn't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. And you know, and, some, and where it's printed makes a difference too. I mean, you're talking about yeah. print quality. I think a lot of books that are design books that have a lot of these special, special needs in terms of design requirements, because the books are so expensive to produce and you can't charge as really as much as you need to, to, to make up for that. A lot of them are printed in Asia and we never mm. had done that before. Um, at Peach Pit, we, we always printed, uh, our books, uh, in the United States. And mm -hmm. um, so that I, it, some later on after your book, I started looking at potentially like figuring out how we could print in Asia to afford some of the books I wanted to create that had, mm. they were higher design, uh, uh, high, more high touch in terms of design, but it, you know, it adds on shipping delays and you can't really monitor the quality as well. So there are definitely trade-offs there too. Um, right. Yeah. You're saving money, but you possibly sacrificing some quality control and, and, and shipping was a little bit unreliable. So it'd be hard, mm -hmm. sometimes hard to commit to like in-store dates, which a lot of your promotions are built around. Right. Everything's sort of, that's the thing I learned about publishing that I I sort of nuke being an illustrator. I was one cog in the wheel, right? But the the authors were the ones that were getting pressured to like deliver the manuscript. Come on, we gotta because basically, especially in so uh, the other thing I learned in this whole process was the difference between trade press and tech press. Peach Pit is part of tech press. Trade press is like a whole different animal, um, right? The way it's structured and like the lead times are super hugely long because of because of distribution and stuff. So. Like, you know, you think, oh, you know, I'm a day late with my deadline. Well, that could cascade into like weeks on the yeah. back end of that long schedule, right? So um, I think the other difference too uh, between trade and press, trade press and tech press was trade press, because it had these long lead times, I've seen this, authors will work on books like for two years, right? And yeah. have a deadline where, you know, people don't realize we did all this work and we did the book and we did a video because you wanted, we were at the time getting into video. We did that all in nine months, like from start to finish. Just kind of like when I look at back, look back at that, I'm like, how did we do that, Nikki? I don't know how we did it. It's completely impossible. But we somehow did it. And we did it twice. We did it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. and the video component too. Oh my gosh. And then we get shipped with a CD at the time. Who does no, that we, anymore? We were the first one. Actually, I remember this. We were one of the first ones who did not ship with the CD. That was a big oh, idea. Oh, right. It was the card. Right? The codes. Yeah. Right. We the peel codes. away this thing and there was codes in there. Right. Occasionally we'll get a complaint and that doesn't happen anymore, but early on someone would buy used on Amazon. Hey, my code doesn't work. Well, yeah. <laughs> Cause you bought a used book, dude. <laughs> so, so Mike, so Mike, what do you remember? Like what surprised you the most about, cause you were new to publishing at the mm -hmm. time. Like as an, as a new author, what, what was like the most surprising thing to you about the process? Like for, for people, for, for perhaps other people who have not written a book before yeah. and are considering it, like 
I mean, you must talk about they have talked about this on podcasts already. So it's my yeah. Ground it's been it's been a few years. Like when the book first come came out, I talked a little bit about that more. I think when I look back and think about it, it was I realized how much of a team effort a book is. Like people make you know you'll see an author, their name is on the front, right? And the publisher, I guess you just you sort of forget about the publisher part of it. But um, like having you as a lead editor, right? The acquisition editor. But then there was another editor who was a copy editor who looked for like typos and inconsistent grammar. And man, that's when I learned about the Oxford comma, right? And <laughs> where, uh, now that's like, I'm a stickler for that. It's really funny. So, but even beyond that, like production people who were bouncing back with me on production, because our book was unusual in that I did the production, you know, yeah. as a, because I had that skill, like I could do the, all the InDesign and put it all together and Right. So, yeah. but I, you know, we talk how, like how that nine months was seemed impossible. It couldn't have been done without you and your team all doing their work. The indexer, someone who yeah. goes through your book and makes an index like crazy. Um, there's probably other proofreaders. And then I think about the video component, having Brian there that we could hire, who is a professional at video, who could sit there and, you know, orchestrate all this stuff. We hired my friend, Gabe, who yeah. wrote, he basically took the, the, the raw manuscripts that were you know, still being kind of edited and turned them into scripts that then I could turn into bullet points and then speak on the camera. Like I, if I didn't have that whole network, there's a whole network of people that made it possible for me to produce it. And I think that was a, a, a comfort, I think, because I didn't feel like it was all on me. Um, yeah. So that was probably the biggest surprise. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because being a designer and working with teams and knowing that there's press people and there's salespeople and there's all these, the whole bunch of people around projects shouldn't have really been a surprise, but I guess it was. Yeah. Well, it's always, everything's more complex than you think it is until you, mm -hmm. start, then you get into it and you, and you get into the details of making it and you realize that, you know, the production person's going to show you all the different kinds of paper. And we're going to talk to you about, uh, you know, every last little detail. And, and we're going <laughs> to, I do remember catching on all those commas. Like, I, I think that's what I, I think that's probably my biggest contribution was adding that <laughs> Oxford comma. <laughs> probably. Throughout the book, well, we had the you know we had the you, you start off and you had the the development editor. I think that was I think that was I'm gonna look. I think it was Anne Marie Walker. And I'm gonna yep, check to yep. where I'm right. Um, yep, yep. Who like take takes a look at the overall structure and you get making sure you have like the the structure in place and that that it all makes sense and you're covering all the right things at the right times. You know, and, and your book was so was extra difficult because it was hard to edit. I mean, it was mm -hmm. the way it was written was so was the design was so important to it that it was hard to edit and visualize what it was going to look like from an editor's perspective until you actually saw it on the page. Mm -hmm. And by then you'd already put so much work into it. Like, I can't even remember how many passes we did reviewing like the I know we did review the initial copy and then we reviewed it after you did a rough layout, I think. And mm -hmm. then you did a more final layout and then maybe right. a final layout, I think. It was, it was probably like four or five times. Yeah. we. So yeah. the way, for those who don't know, the process worked was Nikki challenged me to write an outline of each chapter. Like what would it cover and, you know, give it decent detail. And that was so, so helpful. Like that was another thing I learned too, was having that structure helped me because then I could start writing. Like I would just take a chunk of the, manuscript and then just start expanding it and putting my thinking and explaining and um we worked our way through the seven outlines basically and then we had sort of a rough 
place to start from. And then we started making modifications and editing. And so we got that really tight with a probably a couple of rounds of like typo editing and consistency and all that kind of stuff. And then, so then I had the manuscript kind of done. So that was like phase one, I guess. Then, well, then I had to figure out like how I'm going to make this into an illustrated book. So being a designer, my tendency was to do thumbnails to understand. So what I did is I designed my own template. I printed out a bunch of them here and I would get away from the house. I would go to a coffee shop and get buy a coffee and sit there with my little page with all the thumbnails. And I would go page by page through the manuscript and start imagining, okay, that's about as much text. And I need this image to illustrate that and started to build this all out. It had like a whole, I have a whole uh, stack here somewhere of all the thumbnails of all the sketches. It's funny because when I look at the book, it's like, this is actually pretty accurate. Like it's not too <laughs> far off from what I did. So um, at first I did like a small one and that helped me calculate like, to because there was a page count that I knew I had to hit, right? So we sort of were, is how long is this chapter going to be? And then we added them all up and the index and the front. And so then we had a sense of like, okay, this is, we fit. Then I did another pass of thumbnails where I did a bigger size thumbnail, which took a whole page and that's where I did the detail. Then I had a rough idea. Then I started visualizing even bigger the images and where the text would flow. And then that's what I used. I had that next to my desk when I went into production. And that's when I would take either the drawing I made or the submission. So that was another thing we did is I managed all these submissions of other people because we thought it was really important that we capture that this is a community of people doing it. And there's lots of ways to do it. And we wanted to represent that. Because I really did not want it to be the Mike Rohde sketch notebook with just all my work. Like I, I did it to the point that I to explain ideas, yeah. but never as a sh- showcase really, because I wanted it to look more like, hey, you can do it that way or this way or the other way. And there were, you know, seven different. How did you? Threads. How did you decide? I can't remember. How did you decide who was going to to um to contribute in that way did you reach out to friends you knew I... I think yeah a lot of them were friends a lot of people I didn't really know super well I just started talking to them and said hey I'm working on this book I have these three people that are going to do spreads would you be open there were some that were clear like even a lot of lamb was a friend of mine really prolific sketch note a beautiful work oh, yeah. a teacher right so and she took a spread and did one and um a variety of other people Creighton Berman was someone I knew yeah. as well and um, uh, just, you know, a variety of people, but there were a few people. So there were some that were like designers that I knew could handle it, but there were a couple that were on the edge, like Jessica Esch, who is someone in the book. She's a librarian, I believe. Right. But she's like passionate about this approach and her style was really simple and clear and structured. And so her style looked really different. So there were some, like I had sort of like, um, I think we had seven slots or eight slots. I can't remember. So I, there was like probably two thirds were sort of like, I, I know who those people are, but there's like two or three people like, I'm not sure, like, who should that be? And I started looking around because I was looking at all this work. Like I started to talk to people and I could sort of tell by their personality and the work they did. And like, that would be the right person. So it was a little bit of taste making, I guess, where I would pick. I wanted to, we we're trying as our best we could to not make it like all amazing graphic designers so that you look at the samples and then you feel like, well, I can't do that. Like we had to make sure to mix in regular people too. Right. So you had like a gamut of, of structure and style. Yeah. They're all good. I, I I was just 
looking through the book again last night to remind me it had been a while actually since I picked it up. And I was just like, oh, I just remembered how much I love it. I love this book. I love the contributors. It makes you feel, it just makes you want to be more creative. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember when you were making this, I, I was trying to do the sketch noting too. And I, I've never, I've never been able to draw. It's always been something I, I want to do. I mm -hmm. wish I was good at it. Was just, it's always the first thing I want. If I had a hobby, it would be that. But I know don't have time for hobbies and also I'm a little intimidated. I, so yeah, I would try. I would try sketching in my meetings at work. And I I remember every, it's so how many many times people would look at what I was doing and they'd look over my shoulder and they'd they'd ask me what I was drawing and then I'd mm. tell them about your book and then they would get excited about it and they would start doing it. So it was it was um fun. It just it just the whole process makes you feel creative, even if you're not a professional designer. Mm -hmm. um, it makes it feel like like you can do it, and it just it feels fun. It makes you feel like a little kid again, you know. Like you said, like you know, like kids kids draw all the time. You have that ability within yourself. You just have forgotten how to do it, mm -hmm. and it it does tap that part of you where you're like it makes it makes things feel fun again. It made it, it made some really boring meetings fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a win. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm, I, no, I have, so I have a question for you because you're more of the publishing expert. I've, be, I've learned a lot. So I don't know if you remember, like when we first did the book, like I kept asking you questions, like you would tell me something like, Hey, we, we, uh, we, we earned out the advance. I'm like, is that good? And you're like, yes, that's good. You know, like most books don't earn the advance or whatever. You gave me the gave me the the stats, you know, like, and there was, it constantly would happen because I was, again, the work I'd done was two or three illustrations for pretty big books. Rework was a huge book. Yeah. It's led to more illustration work, but I was just one part in it. I didn't see the whole, I didn't have that bird's eye view of like everything. So I didn't know what to expect, which is probably good, right? Like I think not having expectations maybe was better. I don't know. I couldn't be disappointed. I don't, I don't know. I've always felt, here's a full confession. Like I've always felt a little guilty that I published your book in that I didn't, because I loved it. Right. I I thought it was, I knew it was going to be a, an amazing book. I love the topic. I loved everything about it, but you probably could have made a lot more money publishing with a non-tech publisher. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like, that's because your book is not a tech book. It's it's really more mm -hmm. of like an Austin Kleon type book, right? It's it's yeah. more of like a um, you know, a Jessica Hagee how to be interesting kind of book. It's it it does teach you things, but it's just it's so visual and different and creative that it didn't really fit the category of the types of books we were making and the types of books our salespeople knew how to sell that mm -hmm. well. Um it was it was something we were experimenting with, but like I always felt a little bit like, oh, I probably should have told Mike to go publish somewhere else where he could have gotten a lot more money than what we, I mean, and it's not that, that like, you know, like the, the advance and royalties and all that, that I gave you were not less than, I mean, they were good for what we paid mm -hmm. people, but in a different industry altogether. Um, I mean, so I'm going to apologize to you now, 10 years later, Mike, I should have sent you away. Well, I should have sent you away. I feel pretty good. I think we've done pretty well. And, you know, David and I, my agent had that discussion, like, he said hey you know if you want we could like spend six months and like do a full proposal and like go after random house or these guys but i remember you know we have to think about that time time frame which 2011 2012 like i mean the only books about visual thinking that had been out were really dan rome was sort of like the leader in yeah. that space right mm -hmm. um 
and you know austin clans just came out before like i said it was like a month before and he was with an alternate publisher right so yeah i kind of wonder i thought the same thing but i thought you know what i don't know if the the trade press would have been ready for it and my concern and dave talked to me about this was they might have forced you into like uh you know a formula that made sense for them but not for the content right so like that I think was a worthy trade-off in my view, because I wanted complete control, which I got. That yeah. was that was worth it, I think. Yeah, that is the one thing I could give you was complete right. creative control. So good. Thank you. You make my feel less guilty and bad. Like I, I felt that way about several other people too, like books. I'm like, oh, I just want to work with you so badly. I you're still I, people are so interesting and they do such a great work. And I'm like, and I always for some of them, I just felt like a little, I always mm. felt just a little bit guilty because uh, in, I knew in my heart, you might be able to make more money elsewhere, but I wanted to work with you and I wanted to work with, you know, Stefan and, um, you know, you know, Robin Landon, and Rose Ganella and all those amazingly talented people. Mm-hmm. So apologies to all of them for the money. I didn't make them. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, I'm trying to think, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, um, Seth Godin that talks a lot of it about um, that the important thing is uh, attention, right? That the, the attention is hard to get. Maybe it was somebody else. So like, I think it was definitely a guerrilla operation, right? There wasn't <laughs> yeah. a lot of budget for promotion, but I think, no. we, you know, I've been doing guerrilla stuff for a long time, like with my palm tip sheet, which is this newsletter. I just cooked up one day and ended up with 5,000 subscribers and sold it to another company. Like all that was guerrilla marketing stuff. Like we, I experimented with all kinds of stuff. So it was just the same kind of challenge. Like, well, I listen to podcasts. What if I can get on podcasts and talk about the book? And we aggressively seeded the people that we felt would be open to it with uh, sample copies. So I think that really helped. Um, And we gave away lots of books, but I think it was a good investment. So you're so good. You're one of the best at that too, that I am of, of all the um, authors I had, you were the one who was willing to do, I think the most work p- marketing the books, like and putting in like, mm. I, I remember you created an entire press kit. I and mean, this is something authors would come to us expecting us to do. And we really didn't have a big budget for marketing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the margins of publishing are so tight and especially right. in tech publishing, like some, some authors would come expecting like book tours and bookstores, which we stopped doing like a zillion years ago yeah. and, you know, or like full on marketing campaigns, but, it, but, you know, Peach Pit at the time really put their, all their marketing efforts really into specific like bookstore promotions and getting your front, your, your books in front of store buyers, but not a lot of anything else. Mm-hmm. And so when I was trying to find authors, I was always looking for people. And this is true now today of anybody, I think in publishing, you're looking for people who already have a platform. You're looking for people who are, and this is what I tell people even now when they ask me, like, I want to write a book, you know, what is your advice? I'm like, well, are you the expert on the topic that are you the person everybody knows as the like you're the sketch mike you're the sketch learning guy if i'm going to want to learn about sketch learning first person comes to mind mike grody are you the first person who comes to someone's mm-hmm. mind on that topic do you have a, a, a large network what is your social media following what is do you have other ways to promote your book if it's not social media do you have a big newsletter list like how are you why what makes you the perfect person to write this book and you had all of those things right you 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 were 
you coined the term sketchnoting. You were the one really who is like making all the noise about it, like out there and, and, and constantly talking about it and promoting and teaching about it. And I remember you, um, you were so thorough. Like we gave the books away. You created the press kit. You made it easy for people to promote the book. Cause remember you made that, like, um, that press kit you put it on Flickr, so we posted pictures yep. of the inside of your book for people to use. You had your headshot. You you wrote your own tweets for people to be able to yeah. like retweet. That's what people do now today as standard. But at the time, we didn't. We nobody did that. I mean, you were just <laughs> you were so good at it. And I think that's one of the reasons too that we were willing to take uh, such a risk on you um, and the book and invest so much money into creating um, something for a first time author is because you really came to you came to us with with all of those marketing skills and, and um, we knew you would do more than your share to help, help us sell it. And I, and I think that's part of what made it so successful too. I mean, it's an amazing book in and of itself, but you can make an amazing book and it still won't sell it if, if people don't know about it. Right. I think, you know, the other angle that I throw in here too is luck. Like there has to be a little bit of component in luck. I don't know what percentage, like the timing of like when it came out and who was open to it. And there weren't like you taught, we talked early on when we did the, we talked about contract stuff, like, well, it's gotta be the, the market has to be there, but it can't be too big because then <laughs> you're just another player, but it's gotta be big enough to, you know, like that was this weird. And we sort of came in at just this right moment. I think when yeah. people wanted it, the other thing that's really fascinating about the life of the book is probably the first two, three years were probably, 90% were graphic designers that were buying it because that's that's who we knew, right? Not yep. only Peach Pit knew that uh, demographic and that kind of mindset, but I was one and I knew what other designers would like. And I was, a lot of those people on the seed list were other designers who I think would appreciate it, right? So that was like the core, but like about five years in, suddenly teachers discovered it and they went crazy for it, right? Because they could see like, okay, I can, I can have my kids like drawing that I keep telling them they shouldn't do. This is actually <laughs> something they can do and it will help them remember and do better on their tests and be more engaged. Like, yeah, sign me up, right? So then suddenly teachers got onto it and they're like a different kind of an animal because anything that will help them um, teach their kids, they're willing to do it um, yeah. within reason, right? Obviously, but they saw immediate and the feedback I got was immediate response and positive. And then they started like there were teachers that were going off to like conferences for teachers and teaching sketchnoting, which, you know, my mindset, again, also is more of a growth mindset. And you should teach it like I'm more interested in everybody doing it, because I think as you grow the people that want to do it, that just naturally means I rise, you know, the, yeah. the rising tide concept, you know, so. But that was a real fascinating shift was to teachers just suddenly taking ownership. And like now I think probably it's a lot more teachers that actually are into it and it's starting to get into schools. Um, the last tidbit about this that I'll say is my daughter came home. She's a middle school kid. She came home from school and said, Hey, uh, dad, the teacher just introduced sketchnoting in class today. So I went up to her after and said, my dad wrote the book, right? Cause they had <laughs> books. So she was really proud of that. <laughs> oh, see, okay. You made your kids proud of you. What you, mission accomplished you, you yeah. don't even just you can drop your mic and walk away so I think that's <laughs> well done yeah well done. i think it's interesting like when we did the workbook um 
it was interesting to see not just teachers, but all these different professions. And you've had, I'm sure pe people reach out to you over the years from all different fields talking about the ways that sketchnoting has helped them do their jobs, like doctors mm -hmm. explaining, you know, complicated doctor terms to, right. to patients. Yeah. 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 I think I find, I love those stories. I love seeing how people use it in their, in their daily work and, and, you know, how it makes a difference, you know, it, you know, in, in, a, in all these different scenarios, whether it's traveling or you know, in schools or you know, any of those places. Are there, is there, is there, are, is there anyone that sticks out to you as being mm. more, more or less, more memorable than the others? I mean, there's so many, I'm sure, but is there one that yeah. means more to you than others? Well, there's two and they're sort of similar to each other. So there, um, there was a, a teacher, local teacher, Cheryl Knezel, who was on the podcast a couple of seasons ago. She was an art teacher. She stumbled into sketchnoting. She says it changed her life because she got into graphic recording and all this stuff. But while she was a teacher, there was a student I think his name was Dylan or Brady. I don't know what his name was, but he had something called dysgraphia, which is this uh, condition where when you look at text, it just looks like a gray jumble and you can't make sense of it. Makes it really hard to read and process, makes it hard to write notes in a typical format. So he apparently through Cheryl discovered sketchnoting and started to do it and Basically, he before he discovered sketchnoting, it was pretty much guaranteed he wasn't going to college because like it's only going to get worse, right? You can't you can't process this information. Turns out that sketchnoting was like his salvation in a way to make him be able to understand and process information in his way. Of course, he had accommodations to allow him to do this, and so he he's at college, maybe even graduated by now, but he wouldn't have been. Then there was another woman who reached out to me, and it was her son who had the same similar dysgraphia and then a few other things mixed in there that made it complicated for him and so the same the same thing happened again it's like holy cow how is this happening like i i could have never predicted this but this little kid was taking his pencil and he translated notes in the way that made sense to him and was drawing images he could remember he could do he could do like little speeches off of what he wrote like it really worked for him and she also expressed like i never thought he was going to go to college and now he's going to go to college so that crazy like we how could we have known that 10 years ago that that would even happen but it did i see i love i love stories like that it makes it feel i mean it just makes your work feel meaningful like you have the work we did you know mostly you but i mean the work that you did just really it truly impacts people's lives like you are mm -hmm. helping people in a meaningful way and what you did really matters it really deeply matters to some people um, i love that yeah, I can't think of a better way to wrap up our discussion than <laughs> focusing on, you know, that's where it's at. The book continues to sell. Um, it's in multiple languages now. The most recent was Vietnamese that suddenly, like I got it. That was a really interesting story. I got this email from this guy like, hey, I, I want to do your book in Vietnamese. Yeah, not a problem. Let me connect you with the rights people at Peach Pit. So I did. I forgot about it. And then, I don't know, four months later, I get this package in the mail and it's like, both of my books translated into Vietnamese. They had so a cool. they had a bookmark in there that came with it. Like, holy cow! Like, how did that happen? So, there are a few um, translations: German and French, and Czech and Ukrainian. It's in Ukrainian um, oh, as well nice. as Russian, um, Vietnamese, Chinese as well. Um, so that was really satisfying to see it translating into other languages. And 
you know, maybe not as many as some, because if you just have text to flow in and somebody translates, it's a different level of challenge. But certainly the ones who did do the translations really did nice work. And, and the German and the French version, I was, again, I was pretty active in cultivating who could be local French or German speakers to replace the American ones in those versions and being there to help with advising and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, your I, book is not an easy one to, no. to, to do. I can't even, I'm amazed that there's so many translated versions of it, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how they did that. You really need a designer and you probably need ideally a designer who's an illustrator or two separate people. Uh, the thing that I'll say about, I think it's both the Ukrainian and the Russian versions is if you, if you somehow managed to get a copy of them, um, they were crazy. They, they had a whole team and they went through all the sketch note samples and replaced all the English text with Cyrillic text. So when wow. you look at the book, it looks like it's completely done in Russian or Ukrainian. It's That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. I would love to see that. You'll have to show it to me next, yeah. next time you're in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Bring all of your copies with you. Yeah. And show them to you. So, <laughs> um, well, it's so good to have you on this part of the podcast talking a little bit about the history. I mean, it's probably, you know, we're probably the most interested in the discussion, but there might be <laughs> people, you know, who are kind of curious, like, how did this thing happen? And what was it like? And I think you're right. There's people that are, you know, I was one of those people that thought I'm never going to write a book like I'd love to, but what am I going to write a book about? I, you know, I don't know what to write a book about. And well, this up. is one thing. This is one thing because I was going, I was going back and thinking about this. And you said in your book and in your notes and everything you wrote about it at the time that you started doing sketch noting because you were bored and you decided you hated taking notes and you wanted, you gave yourself a small challenge, a small challenge, an experiment, a small experiment to mm -hmm. just try to make it more fun for you and look at how it has changed changed your life so i would say to me i have to think about that again it's so inspiring like one small change just try one thing try one small thing try ch change it up experiment it doesn't have to be big and who knows where it will go right who knows where it will lead you i love that i feel that it, i feel like that just gives you hope right that you don't know what mm -hmm. tomorrow or 10 years is going to be you could change one thing small and it could it could not only change your life, but look at how many others. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So it is amazing. It's well, thanks. Thanks so much for being on the show and chit chatting. And we'll have to get together again at the 15th anniversary and see if we can still remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I'll be like if I remember my own name. Yeah. The we'll, 15th we'll, anniversary. We'll be we'll be sitting in the uh, the old person's homes in our wheelchairs. <laughs> Zooming each other. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's good your... to catch up, Mike. Yep. Well, thanks a lot. The Sketchnote Army podcast was created by me, Mike Rohde, and brought to you by Rohde Design Studios. It's produced and edited by Alec Polianis of Amp Creative Studios. The theme music was created by John Schiedemeyer. To support the creation of this show, I invite you to buy one of my books, The Sketchnote Handbook or The Sketchnote Workbook. You can find the books on Amazon or... Go to peachpit.com and use the code RODY40 for 40% off. Please share this podcast with other visual thinking friends and be sure to leave a nice rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app so others can find the show.